Heavenly Father, Father, I ask for protection for those in this body, throughout the world, in your body, and those who have yet to know you. Protection, Father, from a disease and from the turmoil of the world and protection, Father, from fear and from the enemy's manipulation of it. I pray, Father, for that protection for one reason more than any other, that we would be uh, given opportunity to know you before the days are over, that this crisis, Father, could turn hearts to you, and that in the turning of a heart and a soul to you, Father, great and glorious things would be achieved in the midst of this difficult trial. I pray for that. Pray for those who are listening, Father, that they would be moved out of their concerns, if only for a while, and their minds and their hearts would be set on things above. I pray, Father, for this as we open your word tonight, this morning, and we ask, Father, that you would teach us as only you can by your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me. We're in chapter 21 of Matthew. We'll pick up in verse 33 where we left off. But let me open with a question. What is easier, to look righteous or to be righteous? We can look righteous externally by what we say and what we do, and that may fool some people, but the true person that's inside us, that is who we truly are. And the conflict over external righteousness and inward righteousness lies at the heart of the disputes that we see in the gospel between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, That issue is never more evident than in the encounter that we see represented in the text before us today, that is Jesus in the temple teaching and religious authorities coming to him on the Tuesday before he died in an attempt to discredit him before the crowds. As you remember, we've been studying Jesus now in the temple. He's there in the days right before he dies. He's our Passover lamb going through the inspection that the Passover lamb had to go through. He had to be inspected for four days in the household of God to ensure that he was truly spotless. Now, we're gonna study this conflict all the way through chapter 23 of Matthew, this day of inspection, Tuesday. And we come back into the moment now. It's a tense moment from last week's study. This is where Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are speaking to one another in the morning of that day. And Jesus has just told them a parable, a parable in which he compared these religious leaders to a son who has told his father that he will obey his father's request to work in the field. And yet in reality, this son has no desire to obey at all. And that became a picture of the heart of these religious leaders. Now out of that parable, Jesus now moves to a second parable. And in this parable, he's going to explain why the religious leaders were so set against Jesus as their Messiah. And the issue, as I just mentioned, came down to external righteousness versus internal righteousness. Open with me in chapter 21, verse 33. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, then killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. 
They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? All right, well, so Jesus asked his accusers to consider a second parable, this one of a vine, uh, a vineyard owner. And in that earlier parable, just a moment earlier, when he compared these same men to those sons, he made the point to them that they are like that first son who only had external righteousness. He, he was the kid that told his father, I'll do what you tell me, Dad. I'll go out in the field. But in reality, in his heart, he had absolutely no intention of doing that. He was like the guy with all hat, no cattle. He would say what he wanted, but he had absolutely no intention of following through. He gave his dad lip service. In reality, his heart was far from his father. Now, the hero of that first parable, though, was the other son, the son who disobeyed initially and then, in the end, repented and went into the field uh, before the story was over. He was the one that represented the prostitutes and the tax collectors, and they were different in the sense that they never pretended to be righteous. They knew who they were from the very beginning, and that's why they were so rebellious. They were sinners. But it was that fact that they repented in the end that led them to an opportunity for forgiveness. Now Jesus is moving this conversation along one step, and now in the second parable, he gives an explanation for why the religious leaders are the way they are. And it has often been called the most important parable in Matthew's gospel, because in this one parable, Jesus explains the entire reason for his contentious relationship with the leaders and ultimately why he goes to the cross in the simple sense of why his offer of the kingdom did not produce fruit. And this parable is built on several Old Testament pictures, one out of Isaiah, one out of the Psalms. And almost every detail in this parable has allegorical significance. So we could spend a lot of time on this, I won't belabor it, but it's important to get to the detail. And let's start by just reviewing the events of the parable. And some of what you see going on in this parable is unique to ancient Israel, so we wanna understand the context. In this parable you have a man who owns a vineyard. And in ancient times, much like today for that matter, the value of land was determined by what it could produce. People put their land to work. You didn't want a piece of land sitting there idle. That's like owning a factory that wasn't working. It didn't do you any good. So if you have a landowner who possesses a large tract of land and he can't work the land himself, either it's too big or he doesn't have enough workers or whatever, then it was natural for him to hire that land out, to get others to work it for him. And the land then is still producing income for that landowner, and of course he's gonna share that income with those that he hires to work the land. So as this story goes, you have a landowner investing his time and his money into preparing his land because he wants it to produce grapes. The text says, the parable says he digs irrigation channels, he plants the best vines, he removes the stones, he puts in equipment, builds a watchtower, and so on. He's done everything he can to create the optimal circumstances for his land to produce fruit. And then he goes on a journey. And in his absence, he puts the land in the care of custodians who are vine growers, the people who are responsible for working the land. Now, think about it for a moment. These custodians have invested nothing. They don't own the land. They haven't done anything to the land. They don't have any investment in the land. All they have is a stewardship. They have the stewardship of managing the crop. And so the responsibility is to produce fruit. If you want to say it this way, the measure of their obedience is the fruit that they produce. And if they do their job properly, then they're not only gonna see the owner profit, but they're gonna profit as well. They're gonna share in that. So they have an incentive to work the land well. 
Now in this parable, these custodians become self-deceived. By their position of responsibility and by the prospect of a large harvest, they start to see the land as their own. And they decide they would rather keep the entire harvest than giving what is due to the owner and settling for the share that is rightfully theirs. In effect, they come to believe they own it all themselves. So when the time comes for the harvest and the landowner is seeking to receive what is his, he sends a slave as his representative and that slave comes to announce it's time to give the owner what is his. And uh, time after time as these slaves come, the custodians of the field are beating them, abusing them, and ultimately killing them. Now in response to all of that outrageous behavior, you would expect the landowner to have taken an extreme measure in response, but the landowner in this case shows an amazing degree of patience and mercy to these custodians. Instead of immediately responding in anger, as he rightfully could have, he sends yet more slaves to these people, and then again, the same thing happens. The rebellion continues. So ultimately, the landowner gives these custodians one final opportunity to do the right thing, He sends his son to represent him. Now, the custodians have shown no respect at all to the slaves, but the landowner says, surely, surely they'll respect my son. I mean, he is the heir of the land. He represents the father's interest. Effectively, this land is his. But when they see the son coming, they recognize he's an heir, and it causes them to react in the opposite way. Because they know that he will receive this land as his one day, they say to themselves, if we kill this son, then the land will have no heir and we will get to keep it. And so they throw the son out of the vineyard and then they kill him. That's a ridiculous plan. I mean, it shows how self-deceived those men are, right? That they would think that the landowner is going to turn a blind eye to their uh, blatant effort at stealing the land from him, to say nothing of the abuse of the slaves and the killing of the son. So in response, Jesus asked the Pharisees, what do you think this landowner should do? Now before we look at their response, let me decode the parable. I think you can probably see for yourself who this parable represents, but let's go through it. First, the landowner in the story represents the father, that is God the father, who created Israel and planted her, so to speak, in the land that he gave her. And the Lord has prepared that land for Israel. He set it up for them to succeed in it, and he gave them everything that they needed to flourish in the land. Remember, he pushed out the land's inhabitants, the Canaanites, who were there before. And he gave Israel victory over her enemies when they tried to come back and take the land again. He brought rain in the appointed time. He caused the ground to give forth its produce. He blessed the people with abundance. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord gave Israel everything it needed in this context, and in that sense, the Lord is the landowner, and Israel is the vineyard. And the Old Testament actually confirms this interpretation. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, Isaiah says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed the stones, planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewn out a wine vat in it, and then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So in Isaiah, the Lord tells us plainly, Israel is God's vineyard. And you notice 
So many of the details in that passage were identical to what Jesus said in the parable, which tells us Jesus is trying to get these religious leaders to remember this passage in Isaiah. Isaiah says the Lord planted his nation in the land for the purpose of seeing them produce spiritual fruit. It was supposed to be their godliness and their obedience to the law that the Lord would use to produce a testimony to the world. You know, you've probably read in the Old Testament about how Israel was to be a light to the nations, a beacon. They would beckon the world to come and know the God that had made Israel what it was. Instead, Isaiah says that's not what happened. The Lord looked down and saw that the harvest that he expected was not that of good grapes, but worthless grapes. That is, Israel historically were ungodly, disobedient, and rebellious. But here's the point. Why was Israel unable to produce good fruit? Why were they rebellious in the land? Why didn't this work out the way the the Lord intended that it would? Well, from Jesus' parable, we get our answer. The answer is the custodians of the land. When the time came for the Lord to receive a harvest from that land, he got nothing back, and why? Because he left in charge people, that is the custodians of the land, who did not do their job. In this case, the custodians of the parable are the kings of Israel, the priests of Israel, and most of all, the teachers of Israel. And it doesn't take much effort to go back and look at the history of the nation of Israel and see how the leaders of Israel forgot their place and their purpose, and most of all, they forgot their source of righteousness. And along the way, they started to see the land of Israel and the people and their stewardship of such as their possession not as God's possession. Earlier in a point of Israel's history before God sent them out of the land, he spoke to them through the prophet Ezekiel. And he told them this concerning those leaders who had failed in their respect, in their uh, role of stewardship. Listen to what he says about the shepherds of Israel. It's in Ezekiel 34, verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force, and severity you dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. If you keep reading in chapter 34, it only gets worse, but you get the point. Israel, their shepherds, rather, of Israel had become arrogant, they had become greedy, and they became abusive of God's flock. And as a result, they drove the people of Israel into idolatry and depravity and all manner of sin. And why? Because it suited their own personal purposes. They used the vineyard, so to speak, for their own purposes rather than for the purposes the Lord had ordained. Now, in the parable, you see the landowner showing extreme patience with these poor custodians. And the history of Israel says exactly the same thing about God. The Lord in his mercy and in his love for his people over the history of the people of Israel gave them time and opportunity, opportunity after opportunity to repent and to return to him. And he gave them warnings. He sent slaves 
to tell them that he wanted spiritual fruit. And of course, the slaves in this parable are the prophets of Israel, those who God sent to his people with a word to tell them that they needed to produce a good harvest. And Isaiah was actually one of those slaves, of course. He was one of the prophets sent to Israel. And in the passage I read earlier from Isaiah 5, listen to how it continues. In Isaiah 5, 3, the Lord says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than that I have done for it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. And I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So that's what Isaiah wrote, but remember, that's also what Isaiah told the people of Israel. That is like a slave coming to the custodians and saying, your landowner is expecting better from you. He wants his spiritual fruit. And when he delivered that message, to the people of Israel in his day that the Lord was coming to break down the walls and trample the ground and so on, that the Lord was going to judge Israel for their failure to do as he expected, they didn't like that message. Now, it was true, obviously. Isaiah said Assyria was coming, and they did. Later, Babylon came as well. Those are the warnings that God brought his people, and they ignored them. But just like in the parable, the custodians of the land, that is, the religious leaders, the kings, and so on of that time, They didn't want to hear that message, and instead, they took the prophets, they mistreated them, and killed most of them. Tradition holds that Isaiah himself was persecuted to the point that one day, he fled from a mob that was seeking to kill him, and he found a hiding place in a hollow tree. But the mob discovered his hiding place, and the Talmud reports that they killed the prophet by sawing the tree and the prophet in half and that his blood came out from the tree as he was being sawed in two. Hebrews 11 reports the same. So now, in the parable, the landowner gives his custodians one more opportunity to do the right thing and submit to his authority. He sends his son. And of course, that's the easiest detail in this parable to understand. The son of the landowner is no less than Jesus, sent to Israel in his day, offering them the kingdom. But how do the religious leaders, the custodians of that time, respond to the heir, to the son who came in representing the father? Did they produce spiritual fruit? Well, no, because they looked at the Messiah and they said to themselves, if this man Jesus is in fact our Messiah, if he were to rule over us, well then that would mean we would be out of favor and we would be out of power. Remember, Jesus has already told them multiple times that their elaborate religious system, the Pharisaic Judaistic system, based on the Mishnah, was all bunk. It was all external. It was a system of external righteousness, and Jesus has already said this is invalid. It's not what God has asked. And so having heard that, the custodians, these religious leaders, conspire They say, we can't have that. We can't have this man come and put us out of power. So they decide to end Jesus' claim to the vineyard. Specifically, 
They want to deny his opportunity to rule as the Messiah, and so they conspire to throw him out of the city and kill him. And I love that little detail in the parable. Notice they put him outside the city before they kill him, which is exactly how Jesus' crucifixion took place. Now, after Jesus tells this parable, like he did with the first parable, he turns to his audience, to these religious leaders, and he asks them, in effect, to name their own punishment. He asks them, what would you do with these custodians if you were the landowner? And without realizing that the parable is about them, they give the logical answer. They say, well, uh, in verse 41, they say to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus said to them, well, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Well, the religious leaders, in answer to Jesus' question, they say, well, it's obvious what should happen here. The landowner should bring those men to a terrible end and then give that land to someone else who would care for it obediently. There's a better English translation possible, I think, of verse 41. I think it could have been translated, he will bring those evil men to a severe end. I wonder if Jesus was standing there amazed at about this moment for the fact that these men still could not see themselves in this parable, not even at this very last moment. And that's especially surprising when you consider how closely this parable paralleled Isaiah's passage, which these men would have known by heart. But they're not seeing it because they're that self-deceived. So then Jesus says, have you overlooked the scriptures that told us, that foretold how Israel would ultimately reject their Messiah? Quoting from Psalm 118, Jesus says that the stone that the builders reject will become the chief cornerstone. Now the builders in this context refer to these religious leaders. That is, the custodians of the land were busy building a religious structure of their own. They were looking at something from their own point of view. They wanted a religious system that served their needs and fit their preferences. And if you can imagine a building project, these guys are looking over a a quarry of stone and there's Jesus in there, one of the stones, so to speak. And they look at Jesus and they say, no, 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 that stone won't work for us. Not at all what we're looking for. And they overlook him to choose other stones. But that stone that they overlooked, Jesus said, is the one that the Lord himself will use to build his kingdom. And as Isaiah promised centuries earlier, the land that Israel has enjoyed for so long up until this point will be taken from them and from their leaders, at least for a time. And the land and the people and the the, the men that once ruled over them, they'll all be gone. And this vineyard, this construction project, let's change the metaphor now as Jesus does. Instead of a vineyard, let's talk about a building made of stone. This new project of building a building will go to a new group a new group of custodians. That new group will be hired, as Jesus says, to care for what that prior group of custodians abused. And in the process, it will produce the fruit that God expected. 
What is this new building? Well, beginning with the Jewish apostles and continuing today to the church that we have now, this is the building that God has now begun to build in place of what he was doing for Israel in that day. He's turned to Gentiles in the church to produce fruit. But that's only for this time. It's not forever. The Bible goes on to tell us that there's a future day in which the Lord returns to his vineyard and with a new group of leaders and ultimately with himself as their shepherd. Not relying on the old custodians of the past, but as Ezekiel goes on to explain, God says, I'm done with all these shepherds who abuse my flock. I will now be their shepherd. And he speaks of Jesus, of course, coming back to reign over Israel in the kingdom. Now, it's about this point in the, in the parable where the lights go on and the religious leaders figure out, oh, I see what you did there. You've been talking about me again. This whole thing is about us. That they have just pronounced their own judgment. They had just said the Lord should deal harshly with these people, and Jesus says, yep, that's exactly right. That's what's gonna happen to you. Now, if there was any doubt in our minds about the evil in the, the hearts of these men, that is confirmed. The evil is confirmed when you look at their response because what Jesus says about them is that they have now been revealed as the bad custodians, and they turn around and double down on their evil by planning to seize him and kill him. The only thing that stops them in the moment is their fear that the crowds might be on Jesus' side. So that's the message. The message is that this offer of the kingdom was rejected, not because they didn't know he was the Messiah, but because they didn't want him to be their Messiah. So I ask you again, what's easier, to look righteous or to be righteous? I think the answer might surprise you because the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they looked very righteous, but they maintained that appearance through a lot of hard work. That was the system that they preferred. And as you probably remember from earlier lessons in this study, those men engaged in elaborate rituals of washing multiple times a day. They prayed publicly throughout the day. They fasted multiple days every week. They were the epitome of righteousness, external righteousness in Israel. And they worked really hard to keep up that external righteousness. But because it was external, because it consisted only of behaviors on the outside, it masked their true nature. I want you to think of external righteousness in a, in a certain way. Think of it like an actor portraying a role, playing a role on a stage. You know, an actor works really hard at the craft of changing mannerisms, changing voice inflections. They, an actor does all these things in order to adopt a different persona. So he'll carry on in this contrived way on a stage for the sake of an audience that's watching. And if an actor is good at this, if they do the hard work, if they perfect their craft, they can convince an audience that there's someone else. And so for maybe a couple of hours during the play, an actor on stage literally becomes someone that he is not, actually. But that transformation is entirely external. When that audience is gone, and when that actor is alone again in his dressing room, he returns to his true self. He is underneath unchanged. He's the same person he's always been. All he did was change his external outward appearance for a time to gain the approval of an audience. Here's my point. If you work hard enough, you can make yourself to be someone or something that you are not. Because that's what the Pharisees did. And 
it takes hard work. It's incredibly hard. It's incredibly difficult to discipline yourself to the adopting of mannerisms and habits and styles of living, all for the purpose of projecting a certain image to an audience. They did it to project that to the Jewish society of their day and to each other for that matter. But under that facade, the true nature of Pharisees and Sadducees and the rest was always there. Because in effect, it was just an act. They were acting. But here's the thing. They were so dedicated to that act that they took it to a new level. They took it to the extreme that they learned to stay in character at all times. Even in their homes when they were by themselves, Pharisees continued in this act of external righteousness. They did that to the point where they knew no other way. They maintained this act of external righteousness to the point where they even convinced themselves. They they were like that actor who stays in character even off screen, even between takes, and they do it for too long, and sooner or later they start to pretend or think that they're the person that they're acting to be. They can't tell the difference between themselves and the character anymore. That's how the Pharisees were. They truly believed that by observing all of those elaborate religious rituals that they invented, those things were the source of their righteousness. And then they went the next step and taught the rest of Israel that if they wanted to be righteous too, they needed to mimic all of those same behaviors. And then they wrote it all down, they called it a Mishnah, and they made it a religion. But God isn't fooled by that facade. He understands that our rituals and the prayers we recite, and the extreme piety that we show, perhaps, that all of those things are external. And he knows the intentions of our heart. And the things you do externally do not change who you are on the inside, not by themselves. And God knew that the men of Israel, the men who led the people, the custodians, as you remember from the parable, he knew who they truly were on the inside, and it's that inward reality that he judges. So appearing righteous, looking righteous, hey, that's hard. It takes a lot of hard work. But here's the irony. It doesn't achieve anything. It doesn't change anything. And even worse than that, it can deceive someone into thinking they have something they don't actually have. Now, on the other hand, being righteous, inwardly righteous, would you know that's actually very easy, humanly speaking. It only requires faith in Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says when you put your faith in Jesus, God credits you with Jesus' righteousness. Paul says it so simply in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So true righteousness, that is the inward change that God judges, that happens as a result of faith in Jesus. And it's accomplished by the Spirit of God working in us to give us a new spirit. We're called born again, is the phrase Jesus uses in John 3. It's the idea that we are made new in the Spirit by the work of Christ in our hearts. That's what Jesus was offering Israel. That's what he was offering the religious leaders. But here's the thing. If they were gonna receive true righteousness by faith, they had to first repent of self-righteousness. That is, they had to give up any effort at obtaining righteousness externally in order to embrace that true inward righteousness. And what does it mean then to repent? Well, in this sense, it means something very simple. Stop acting. Give up the role. Don't be an actor anymore. 
Stop trying to pretend you're something on the outside that you know is not truly who you are on the inside. It's like the sons that Jesus used in the first parable. The son that was disobedient right up front, later he repented and gained forgiveness. You know the one thing about that guy that made him available to forgiveness that the second son was not available for? It was the fact that his external view matched his internal view. He was externally unrighteous, and that matched his internal unrighteousness. It gave him an opportunity to see himself honestly. And in time, the Lord used that to convict him. And as he saw what he had done as wrong, he comes back and he's forgiven. The problem with that other son was his external view didn't match his inward reality, and he was too convinced by his acting that he didn't need any help. And so he never repented and he never received forgiveness. That's why the religious leaders opposed uh, Jesus in his day. He was demanding that they drop the act. He was saying to them, put the Mishnah aside, put your rules aside, stop pretending you're someone you're not, and as he said to everyone in Israel, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when he said that to them, they didn't hear, oh, that's easy, What they heard was, that removes our purpose for existence. That destroys our power base. That takes the vineyard away from us. This harvest of greed that we have been looking forward to and enjoying will be taken away from us. They didn't understand that there was something better waiting. They were blind to their predicament because they were convinced they had no sin to be forgiven. They believed their act. There's a point in John's gospel where Jesus says something to these men on that point. In John 9, 40, Jesus says, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to Jesus, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, well, if you were blind, then you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, well, your sin remains. Jesus uses the analogy of blindness and sight to make the point that the Pharisees were walking around saying, we're not blind. That's like saying, we don't have sin. And Jesus says, because you won't acknowledge that you're blind, I'm not gonna give you true sight. But if you had been willing to say, we are blind, you could have seen. The temptation to uh, substitute external righteousness for true inward change didn't die with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That tendency to substitute the external for the internal is still happening everywhere. You know, there are billions of people in the world right now who are still following the same lie. They just have different ways of making themselves externally righteous. And as a result, they all think they're good. They think they don't need what Jesus is offering. Because of what they do, how they live, what they say, what rules they keep, what rituals they practice, those externals, they believe, have done the job. But it's an act. It's just an act. It's one that someone taught them. They said, hey, if you do these things, God will be pleased. But the reality is, like any act, it doesn't change who you are on the inside, and that's what God judges who you are on the inside. Those who would think that external righteousness impresses God are those who are like the Pharisees who think that they are not blind. Jesus says, if you truly want to see, which is his way of saying, if you truly want the righteousness that brings you to God and gives you an opportunity to enter into the kingdom, then he says, you must first start by realizing you are blind. And that blindness is only cured by putting faith in Jesus Christ, who gives us credit for his righteousness. Remember in Psalm 118, the one that the leaders of Israel rejected will be the cornerstone upon which God builds this building of people, of the church, of those of faith, of those who will enter into the kingdom. 
And in verse 44 of Matthew 21, Jesus told the religious leaders, there's two ways you can approach this stone. You can fall on him or it can fall on you. This is the gospel in a nutshell. And the gospel is this. You can fall on the cornerstone in the sense that you can fall on your knees before Christ in repentance and as well, fall on him, fall into his arms, so to speak, resting in his righteousness, letting him do the hard work that you can't do. And as you do that, the Bible says you receive his righteousness. Instantly, you are made righteous in your spirit. You have achieved the very thing that you might have been working so hard to achieve in other ways. You do it instantly on his work, not yours, by his grace, not by your merit. That's one way. Or... You can stand defiantly like those custodians of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, and if you choose to, rest in your own righteousness, your own works, those things you think are making you somebody that you're actually not, then you will share in their fate, Jesus says. The stone, as it were, uh, Jesus, that is, will fall on you and crush you and make you like dust. And that's a poetic way, I guess, of reflecting the judgment that comes upon all who die in their sin. So either we repent of seeking external righteousness, that is by our own works, and we receive his righteousness, or else we're crushed at judgment day. Now, we know, we know what the Pharisees did, we know what their choice was, but I wanna end today asking you, what's your choice? You know, as we go through this interesting period of history, and in particular with our church distributed in their homes and not gathering, I can't know who I'm talking to. Even in a room full of people, I don't know everyone, but certainly in these days, I don't know who's watching. I'm not sure if you were given uh, a link by a friend and you were told, watch this, you might find it interesting. Maybe you wandered into our stream uh, on your own search efforts on the web. I don't know why or how God brought everyone who may be watching, but I do know this. If you are moved by the word of God today in recognition that you need his righteousness, well, I tell you, friend, that wasn't a coincidence. You didn't come here by coincidence. God wanted you to hear this because the days are short and we need to know it before the time is up. And I would ask as I fin finish today and I pray, you'd be praying with me that you would receive what has been spoken here in truth and embrace it in your heart and be saved by it. And if you know Jesus as your savior, you're a part of the body of Christ and you hear this message, I would ask that you would join in this prayer with me for the sake of those who are praying for salvation, that you and I would pray with them that they would have their hearts moved by the Holy Spirit. Pray that they would fall on the stone who saves them by his grace. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our act and take us away from it once and for all. We acknowledge before you, Father, that we have no righteousness of our own. We have sinned many times over. And we recognize that our sin has separated us from you and made us worthy of your judgment. And we ask, Father, that you would forgive us as we repent of that, as we acknowledge our inadequacy to stand before you, much less to inherit the kingdom. We also acknowledge your grace and the righteousness of Christ. We ask that you would give us his righteousness as we put our faith in his perfect life and sacrificial death. And as we receive this, Father, wherever we are by ourselves or with our family, around the world or here in San Antonio, Father, come to us, encourage us, and take us, Father, in a new direction as we serve you in the newness of the life you give us. I pray, Father, that those who hear this message would be moved 
if they are not already yours. And those who are yours, Father, would be reminded that we rest in you alone and not in our own works. Build this body, Father, by your spirit. Use these days to turn hearts and to magnify your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.